Bibles to Matthew 5.17. For those who haven't been with us, we're working through the whole book of Matthew, but right now we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Still in the very beginning, be here for a little bit. So today we're looking at verses 17 to 20. This is God's Word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We thank God for his word. Now let's pray. Lord, indeed, we do express our thankfulness for your word given to us that is a light into our feet and a lamp into our path. We pray that you would now take your eternal, perfect, unchangeable word and open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, this passage is the third larger section that we've looked at in the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes we broke up uh, in smaller chunks, but this is, this is primarily the, the third section. And it's still a foundational piece, and this will make more sense as we get further into it. But this is laying a foundation for what is going to follow, some very practical teaching that Jesus offers dealing with a number of topics, anger, lust, pride, divorce, so many issues, as relevant today as they were when this was preached. As we think back to the flow of the Sermon on the Mount, we remember that in the first 12 verses, the Beatitudes describe our growth in grace according to the, the Spirit's work in our lives. After that, we saw the salt and the light passage demonstrating that there's an impact our lives are going to make for the glory of God, primarily through the promulgation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And now in today's passage, Jesus establishes how his ministry and teaching connect to and flow out of the Old Testament, providing a clarification that was needed that he had come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. This clarification was needed because so many were, well, they found his teaching scandalous. And if you've ever read through the Gospels, you see this emerge in a number of places. By whose authority do you speak? Uh, What about the law of Moses? People had questions because what they were hearing from Jesus sounded different to them. They asked the question about his authority as well. By whose authority do you speak? How do you speak with such authority? They had questions because he spoke like no one they had ever heard. Think back to chapter 4 and verse 17 when Jesus was uh, being baptized by John the Baptist. He said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus, even as we await for its consummation at his return. So the Beatitudes then describe our kingdom citizenship, our our behavior, what is expected of a citizen of the kingdom. Uh, Next, we see the impact or kingdom impact from our lives lived out that God is working in such a way to use everyone who belongs to him. The Spirit gives to all of us who are trusting Christ by faith gifts, spiritual gifts to be used 
for his purposes. And God, through that, is making an impact. So there's this kingdom impact. And then now in today's passage, this instruction about the role of the law, what God is doing, and in particular, the continuity between the Old Testament and what Jesus had come teaching, which would be written down in the New Testament, describing kingdom expansion. It wasn't kingdom replacement. It wasn't kingdom plan B. It wasn't kingdom 2.0 in the sense that we might understand that, but rather an expansion or the unfolding. The saving work of Christ is not plan B. God did not in heaven look down upon his people and the nation of Israel that he had called to himself and said, oh my goodness, what a surprise. They've blown it all. Now, what am I going to do? Let me scratch my head. Let me come up with a new plan. This plan was in place from the foundation of the world. Before creation, this plan was in place. The church is not distinct from Israel as, as to salvation. The church is an unfolding of the people of God. There is one people of God, not two. We mustn't pit the Old Testament against the New Testament as two different plans, but rather one unfolding plan of this revelation of the kingdom. We shouldn't describe the God of the Old Testament. How many of us have heard this? The God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is the God of grace and love. That's, that's not good. God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This, this isn't two distinct gods, two distinct plans, two distinct revelations, but rather a fulfillment of what was spoken before. In the New Testament, Paul talks about a scene through a veil, though dimly. Well, we could almost apply that to the Old Testament as seen through a veil much thicker and therefore even more dimly because of our understanding or the people's understanding through the Old Testament in that time. They didn't have the revelation that we do in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So instead, the coming of Jesus expands our understanding of the kingdom and fulfills all that has been proclaimed about him and God's plan of redemption. As I mentioned, questions were already arising in the ministry of Jesus about what he was saying, what he meant by what he said, and about his authority. John Stott observes, although his public ministry had so recently begun, already his contemporaries were deeply disturbed by his supposed attitude to the Old Testament. Perhaps the Sabbath controversy had flared up thus early, for Mark puts both the Sabbath Sabbath plucking of grain or corn and the Sabbath healing of a man's withered hand before even the appointment of the twelve. That's in Mark chapter 1, so very early in Mark's account. Certainly from the very beginning, Stock continues of his ministry, people had been struck by his authority. What is this, they ask? A new teaching? With authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. It was natural, therefore, that many were asking what the relation was between his authority and the authority of the law of Moses. What is commonly referred to as the law uh, by the Jews of Jesus' day was particularly the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, or our uh, Old Testament, what was the Jewish scriptures. So the law could refer to the Pentateuch, but the law was used more broadly. The law could also refer to all of the Old Testament. So sometimes we need to put on our, our, our glasses and look and see, you know, what, what is the context, what is the, you know, any implication of what is being referred to here. And here we see that the prophets or in the prophets is added to this section, meaning that we're talking not just about the Pentateuch, but the Pentateuch and all the prophets. And it can be, all, it can also include the wisdom literature, 
uh, referred to in, in a number of different ways during this time. But this is shorthand to refer to all the Old Testament. That's, that's what Jesus, the point that Jesus is making here, is that he came not to abolish any of what we would call the Old Testament, which was the Jewish scriptures. He didn't come to abolish the scriptures. He came to fulfill them. Now, we all are familiar with the Pharisees, even we, though we haven't really gotten to them in Matthew's gospel. We've probably all uh, read something about them. We know that they, uh, they had their issues, so to speak. And one of the things that, that had developed was they really focused on the Pentateuch or the Torah. They, they focused on these first five books, the Law of Moses. And in this, these five books, they distilled instructions or commandments. There were 613 Now, you already know where this is going. Even if there's not intention to become a legalistic, what do any of us, human, any human, any nature, believer, unbeliever, any culture, any point in history, when we start making this many or distilling or collecting, what are we going to turn it into? A means for our own righteousness and a means by which to judge others. It is our nature. You ever been to a city or observed a city council meeting and somebody pulls out some well, subsection this? I mean, we, we do this in so many different contexts. In your job, you go to the handbook, you try and find the one thing that will let you off the hook or get someone else on the hook or whatever. It's in our nature. And so what, whatever the intention was, there were these 613 commandments, 248 positive, 365 negative, and they could tell you what they were. And so over time, again, whether intentional or not, these things became uh, traditions that the rabbis then expanded upon. And they began focusing on these things. And they began developing teachings around these things. And, of course, what happens, traditions develop that go beyond the scope. They focused on the letter of the law, and they missed the spirit of the law. If you've walked with Christ for any amount of time, you have experienced this. All of us have experienced this, where we have focused and we're later convicted and our eyes are open and we have seen that we have missed the forest for the trees because we were so zeroed in on the letter of the law, feeling very self-righteous about ourselves, and we had missed the law's intent. Jesus is going to go hard after this in this Sermon on the Mount. So this is important, an important piece of the foundation that he must lay down to explain what his position is according to the law. Even though we may think of the Old Testament relating to external conformity, I remember, you know, I've heard people say this, that you know, we're, we're saved by grace, but Old Testament, they were saved by keeping the law. We might all know that that's not correct, that's not proper. We understand salvation has always been by faith uh, or by grace through faith. Uh, but, but that mindset can kind can, of can trickle in because the revelation of who Jesus is and God's plan of redemption uh, wasn't that clear. You know, in, in, our, in our sense, we look back, uh, you know, backwards, it can all make sense. We, we see it's clear what types and shadows meant. Uh, we look at the tabernacle, for example, and see how it all pointed to Christ, but not everybody understood that. We can see the New Testament as being... Uh, the law that, that focuses, that is grace, that focuses on the heart or where our motive for obedience comes from. But if you'll go back to the Old Testament, if you're still doing the Bible reading plan, Isaiah 1, if you're behind, you're in a different book. Um, not that I know that for any reason, but I may not be in Isaiah yet, but I know that's where we are. I'm, I'm catching up. Um, 
But throughout the Old Testament, if you'll open your eyes as you read with this in your mind, discover all that God has to say about the heart in the Old Testament. This is not simply a New Testament or a New Covenant idea. We see descriptions of hardness of heart. We see God's call for his people to be upright in heart. Uh, example, Psalm 9510, uh, the Lord says, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Two aspects that you see there, both in their heart, that's where the problem was, and the fact that they hadn't known his ways. He wasn't even addressing behavior. All of us understand where the heart is, so goes the behavior. So the behavior was, and again, read the Old Testament, you see the behavior was wrong. But God was interested in the heart during the Old Testament time. God's always desired the hearts of his people. And so in the unfolding of the plan of redemption, a new means is spoken of in the Old Testament, part of what Jesus fulfills. In Ezekiel 36, 27, God promised his spirit would indwell his people. In Jeremiah 31, having just recently read this, we read in uh, verse 33, promises to put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts. So the teaching of Jesus is not a new plan, but the unfolding of an eternal plan of our triune God. So look with me now in verse 17. We read there, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We don't have to study very hard that first phrase, do not think. It's emphatic even if you don't look in the original language and see how the, 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 um, uh, the phrasing and terminology is used. It's, it's emphatic just as we read it in the English. Don't even let it enter your mind. Or the idiom we use, don't even think about it. If, someone, if you're about to do something, change something, say something, and someone says, don't even think about it, there, you, no guess. What, what their expectation is of you, right? Uh, I mean, we've all heard it probably as children from our parents. We knew that whatever line we were trying to push across, uh, that was as far as we needed to go when our parents said, don't even think about it. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message says, don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together. Pull it all together in a vast panorama. And so what Jesus is making clear is his position on the law. You have doubts. You have thoughts. You've, you're thinking you're hearing things for the first time. You think what I'm saying is scandalous. People are suggesting that I have thrown the law of Moses out, that I've thrown the entire scriptures out. And I am telling you emphatically, I have not come to do that. I have come to fulfill the scriptures. And frankly, this is logical. Because who do we discover Jesus is? In John's gospel, we read, For the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The one who spoke the law is not going to go back on his word. He never changes. He then adds to this, do not even think or do not think, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Again, law and prophets, shorthand for our Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to undo or speak contrarily to them. Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. His word will never pass away. First Chronicles 16.15, remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations 
idiom of eternity there. And this is an example, though, where our covenant theology is so helpful. It doesn't see the Old Testament uh, as a discontinuity, but rather uh, Old Testament, New Testament as a discontinuity, but rather a continuity, one unfolding story, one story that expands into the next. The New Testament doesn't undo the Old Testament, but it transforms it in the coming of the Messiah to demonstrate more clearly how we are saved and especially how we meet the lofty standard of righteousness that God requires. Be holy, for I am holy, we read in Leviticus 19. How was that ever going to be possible? How would it ever be possible? I mean, we read that today, even understanding God's plan of redemption and how our atonement is secured, and it still seems impossible. And yet that is God's holy standard. In Jesus' coming, he explains how that is even possible, but he doesn't merely explain it. He accomplishes it so that we may be holy. We know from early, earliest pages in Scripture that salvation has always been by grace through faith. Even before the covenant is executed, uh, God explains it or announces it to Abram. And what does the Scripture say? That he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Salvation by faith. Now that salvation has a name. It is Jesus the Messiah. He goes on, I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. The first thing we note in his words is that he says, I have not come. Jesus came from somewhere. People were often asking that, where did you come from? They didn't want to believe that he had been sent from heaven, that he had come from heaven, that he had come with a purpose. And here he announces that I have not come to do this, but the implication is that I've come from somewhere. He's going to deal with that more later on. But part of his purpose Obviously, we know that, that, that his purpose was the redemption of his people. But part of his purpose was not to undo anything, but rather to fulfill it. Now, we could argue that he sought to abolish the rabbinical traditions, the misunderstandings and misinterpretations of the law itself, but not to abolish the law. He uses the word them again, reminding them he's speaking of the whole Old Testament or the whole Jewish scriptures. And this is important because he not only came and fulfilled the the righteous requirements of the law by obeying it perfectly in our place, but he also fulfills all of the prophecies that spoke about him. I mean, prophecies like born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, things that we might think of at Christmas time, but also the prophecies that spoke of what he would do and what God's people would become and how things would unfold, particularly in the end. This is what it means when he says to fulfill them. One commentator writes, First, he who, who fulfills the law and the prophets displaces them insofar as he must become the center of attention. The thing signified, Jesus, is naturally more important than the sign, the law and the prophets. Secondly, if the law is fulfilled, it cannot on that account be set aside. Fulfillment can only confirm the Torah's truth, not cast doubt upon it. So how do we see Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament? First, Jesus fulfills the doctrinal teaching uh, or the, 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 what we think of as the, the, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah. Even though the Old Testament teaches us about God, man, and the way of salvation, it was, as I said before, through a veil. Uh, it was through a thick veil, a partial revelation. didn't explain everything. 
Uh, again, we can look back and see, and it makes sense. But to the people of the time, uh, it didn't make as much sense as it would to us. It was, it was a partial revelation. Jesus, however, comes and reveals God to man. He accomplishes our redemption on the cross, and he sends his spirit to live with us. J.C. Ryle says the Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The Old Testament is the gospel in blade. The New Testament is the gospel in full ear. Second, Jesus fulfills the prophetic teachings of the Old Testament. Again, we may think of the, the passages that we talk most about at Christmas time, the, the physical fulfillment of how Jesus came. Uh, but again, they only spoke in part. There were only little bits and pieces uh, that were given. It wasn't a full account of all that would happen at the birth of Jesus or all of his ministry. But Jesus continually said and testified that the scriptures spoke of him. And part of his teaching ministry was explaining how the scriptures spoke of him, how they bore witness of him was the language he often used. And so now these shadows of prophecies that we read of in the, in the Old Testament now come into full view in the person of Jesus. Third, Jesus fulfills the moral teachings of the Old Testament. And this was accomplished through, again, his explanations of the intent of the law. He had a lot of correcting to do because of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and what they were doing, what the rabbis had developed into, uh, into traditions that everyone assumed were scriptural. But they were, many of them, based on scripture, but misinterpretations. They missed the, the, the target of what the law was trying to communicate. If all of this sounds strange... This is part of why it sounded strange to the people. And what we'll see as we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is striving to make something clear that to our natural inclination seems off because we are little legalists at the heart level, every one of us. And that little legalist jumps up all the time. We'll see this more and more. Hopefully it will become clearer. He not only explains and teaches about the righteous requirement of the law and fulfills in that sense, but he actually literally fulfills that by obeying perfectly the law on our behalf. He doesn't undo the moral law, but shows how we can obtain true righteousness, a righteousness that is imputed to us who believe in Christ alone. And so the beauty of this passage then in this particular verse is that no one can now say anything contrary to what Jesus' attitude was toward the law. He, without question, makes his attitude perfectly clear in this verse. And now in verse 18, we're introduced to the oft-used phrase of Jesus, truly I say to you. In John, John's gospel, he doubles it, truly, truly I say to you, or verily, verily, if you grew up with the, the King James Version. Uh, this is the first use of it now in Matthew's gospel. I'll point out that it's preceded by the word for, which is, of course, a transitional word. It's a hinge word. It connects what was just said to what is about to be said. And if you'll glance, you'll notice that every verse after the first verse in this section has a form of that, for or therefore. And what Jesus is doing is this is one idea that he's communicating in these verses. He's connecting it all together. So for or because of, now truly I say to you, he says um, in speaking to this. Now, the, um, the, the passages that speak of the eternality of God's Word, we've looked at some already. There are more than I could count in the, in the Scriptures that speak the fact that God's Word never changes because it's His Word. He never changes. He is eternal. He is the self-existent one. Therefore, anything He says is eternal. But here Jesus brings emphasis to His statement by beginning with 
truly I say to you. Because the word here for truly is the Greek word amin, and our English word is the exact same word, spelled exactly the same. We just say it different depending on what country, part of the country you're from. Uh, we normally, I think, say amen, but us true Southerners say amen. Uh, and uh, and if, you, if you've noticed when it's used, it's typically used at the end of a prayer or maybe at the end of a sermon or maybe after a statement in the sermon. This is something many Presbyterians don't know, but it is actually allowable for Presbyterians to say amen or amen in sermons, but amen sounds way better uh, just from a, from a Southerner's perspective. Uh, it is, it's allowable. I'll just let you know that. It's, it's okay. Now, what's unique is it's always used at the end to agree with or to affirm what's just been said. Jesus comes along and uses it at the beginning. And everyone recognized in this use that it was signifying that what he was about to say is true. Uh, it was authoritative. And this is why it caused a few ruffles to get, or flower, or feathers to get ruffled. I picked up Anna Grace and Esther from their trip yesterday, and we got in about, uh, we didn't turn the lights off until three in the morning. I don't know. And I just don't do well, even though today's a new day and I slept fine last night with sleep. So I may be mixing up all kinds of words. Hopefully the Spirit will, will, will give you the grace to hear what I'm trying to say about ruffles and flowers and feathers and whatever it is. Uh, none of that's in my notes, so I, I have no idea what I just said. Uh, but for Jesus to say this at the beginning was a statement of authority. That's how people heard it. That's how people understood it. That's why they asked the question, by whose authority or uh, where did you get this authority? And so here he does this by saying, Amen. As we look through the Sermon on the Mount so far, we see Jesus begins speaking in the third person, blessed is the one, moves to the second person at the end, blessed are you, stays with second person through the salt and light. Now he comes speaking in the first person, truly I say to you. And we'll see this pattern repeated as we go on through the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you have heard it said, but truly I say to you, not changing or abolishing the law, but clarifying what had been a misunderstanding or misinterpretation of the law. Then he states that the end of everything will come before anything from the law ever passes away. And to make this clear, he, he uses letters of the alphabet or pieces of the alphabet uh, to make this point clear that not even the smallest dot or jot or depending on what translation you have, iota or dot, uh, the iota is, is that iota is Greek for the Hebrew letter. The smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet is yod, and that's just the word for that. Uh, the dot, if you're, if you're in the ESV here, is indica- indicating what we would call vowel pointings in the Hebrew uh, alphabet. And so instead of having, they have their consonants, uh, uh, Hebrew letters, but the vowels are all little strokes and dots that are placed uh, above, below, next to the consonants to indicate uh, what, what, what the word is or what the vowel is for that. They're called vowel pointings. Something like the dot over our eye. Really small little things that your eye is trained to recognize and see. And Jesus is saying, not one of these will be undone. Not one will be wiped away. Not one will be abolished. Not one will be changed. Interestingly enough, when we get to the end of Matthew in chapter 24, he says, heaven and earth will not pass away or will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And I wonder how many people remembered what he had said here and likening his own words to scripture declaring who he is. So the word of the Lord has a purpose, just like his counsel, his will, his righteousness, his salvation, all of which are described as eternal in the scriptures. 
Now, the point of verse 8 is not to warn against breaking the law or tampering with the law, but establishing that the law is immovable so that he can go on in verse 19 and give that practical implication, so don't tamper with it. It's like, this, you're not going to change it. You're not going to undo it. You're not going to abolish it. So you better keep it because it is God's word. He says in verse 19, therefore, that transitional word again, because of this, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the two thoughts are connected in this because even the smallest stroke of a letter Uh, of a word or of the whole of scripture, none of it's going to pass away. Therefore, we should be resolute to know it so that we can keep it. We mustn't be tempted to omit, to change, to twist, or to add to the inerrant word of God. He says, the one who relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the great, uh, in the kingdom of heaven. So the word for relax is again, just what we think. We might think of loosening. A word can be also translated loosen. And the idea is, is, is not that when he says the least of these commandments, it's not saying that there are uh, any of God's commandments or can be graded. Now, the, 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 the rabbis had done this, uh, saying that there were heavier commandments of those 613 that they distilled from the Pentateuch. There were heavy and there were light commandments. And, and we get it. Uh, we understand that certainly they're breaking some of God's commandments are heavier, have greater consequences, or more significant than others. Uh, taking someone's life is more significant than an, an, an omission of mercy in some instance. But we look in other passages of Scripture and we see that, but we still don't, it's not an excuse. We still don't get off the hook. James 2.10, whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. In other words, you, you don't get off the hook just to say something's heavier or lighter. We understand them as heavier or lighter. We may experience them as heavier or lighter, but, but, but Jesus is making sure that we understand uh, through this, this and other passages that we, this is not about getting a, a mark, a grade. Uh, we all just get an F because we've all broken the law. That's the point. And because God is holy and his law is perfectly righteous, no infraction is allowable, whether it's a sin of commission or a sin of omission, whether it's done in ignorance or done with our knowing. And this is not because God is whimsically harsh. We've known people, and maybe it was our father who seemed whimsically harsh, and it's altered our view of God as father, but he is not whimsically harsh. Rather, he is perfect, and he is unchanging, and therefore cannot be undone. So therefore, his word cannot be undone. This is why it remains the standard that it is. So we have to be careful to know his word, understand his word, and grow in our ability of both, never loosening nor adding to it to fit our own fancies. Now, ignoring parts of God's word, I think it's easier to understand. We've all done it. It's, it's usually been through ignorance. You ever read the scriptures and come across a passage and thought, I, never, I don't remember that, or I don't know that I've ever read this, and, 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 or just in growing in grace. You're taught, you learn, uh, you listen, and you realize that you have um, left things out. You've ignored God's Word through ignorance. We can also do it with malice, intentionally neglecting what God has made clear. Uh, many people like to do this and, and leave out the stuff they don't like and just kind of ignore it because they don't want to be confronted with their own sin, but they still want to somehow claim 
to, to know Jesus or to love Jesus. And you'll hear people say this, like that those two things can be divided. Uh, to know Jesus and to love Jesus is to know and love his word, uh, just like it is with any of us. I mean, it's, it's, they go together. Adding to God's word, I think, is a little bit trickier because we do it so easily, sometimes without realizing it. I think often without realizing it. One of the ways we do this is take our pet peeves and we turn them into, we, maybe we find a, a proof text or a verse and then we turn it into something that we hold other, over other people. And I know none of you have ever done this, but maybe you've heard stories of people experiencing this or doing this. You all know one of my pet peeves is people who drive in the left lane. I apologize to any of you who I've ever passed in the right lane with a grumpy look on my face. Um, it, I don't know why. It just irritates me when people are, uh, are not passing anyone. Uh, I have discovered as time has gone on and phones have become ubiquitous in our lives that it's often people who are just scrolling on their phones and they don't want to slow down. They don't want anyone to stop in front of them, so it seems safer just to get over in the left lane and then do this all day. Um, whatever the reason is, the law is clear. It's posted on signs everywhere. Most of them, you know, you, most of them, most people don't see. Stay right except to pass. Slower traffic, keep right. Those are the two signs we have in Florida and in, uh, in Georgia, where I'm from. So the letter of the law is that we have no business being in the left lane unless we are actively passing someone. And technically, this is true. But I know the Carsons and Scissors are probably talking about the fact that if I'm trying to pass them in the left lane, what am I doing? Possibly. Could be. Maybe. I don't know. I could be speeding. So One of the points that we're going to see in chapter 7 that Jesus is going to make is judge not lest ye be judged. It is the most quoted and probably the most known verse by unbelievers. Judge not lest ye be judged. In other words, get out of my business. I don't want you to talk to me. And that's not at all what Jesus had in mind. He explains himself, we'll get there soon enough. Basically, by the standard you want to be judged, judge others. He's getting to the heart, all right? This is not something we can pin up on a board and say, I did it or I didn't do it. Uh, We can't even get legalistic with this because the moment that we get legalistic with judge not lest she be judged, guess what? We're judging. So, I mean, that's what he's, he's getting at the heart, getting at the heart, getting at the heart, sometimes using paradoxes. Now, let's say I came along and I added, guys, if you really loved your neighbor, you would get out of the left lane. Do you see the manipulation of that? Now I've taken a commandment, the second greatest commandment, and I've laid this heavy burden on you and your conscience to do something or not do something based on a misuse of the second commandment. Now I can feel righteous because after all, I'm upholding the letter of the law. I can take you to the driver's manual and show you where you're supposed to stay right except to pass. But what I've done is created a form of legalism. Is every situation in respect to traffic laws always black and white? Now, some of us would really like to say so, but none of us believe this and none of us drive like this. None of us. None of us drive like this. There's laws about going too slow, too, just so you know. Is there ever a reason in driving to make an exception based on the situation? When I was a kid, my dad's cabinet builder in the shop, he had an accident and cut off one of his fingers, and I was a kid. My brother's still a kid. We couldn't drive him, and so the guy that was working in the shop with us drove my dad to the hospital. 
we lived out in the boonies. The closest hospital was 45 minutes away. This was back in the 80s. There wasn't ambulance. Or, I mean, an ambulance could come, but you, would, you never wanted to wait on one, especially in a bleed-out kind of situation. So he jumped in the truck and drove him to the hospital. I've often wondered how many people got mad at him for speeding because he, 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 he did. He sped to the hospital. And as he was about 15 minutes away, he got pulled over. And this police officer, who was rightly so focused on the letter of the law, he was indeed speeding, would not let him go. And so he finally said to him, Sir, you can follow me to the hospital and arrest me there, but I'm not going to let this man bleed out and die. And I think that just kind of brought him to his senses. And he said, you're right. And he gave him a police escort and got him to the hospital. So is there ever a situation in driving that we could say, you know, all rules are off. Now, young people, I'm looking at you. <clears throat> be really careful with this because the judge not lest ye be judged works both ways. That's why Jesus is such a brilliant thing that he teaches. We're going to get more to that. Be careful. Don't use this to, uh, to, to break the law. But my point is, is that when I've been in the left lane and I have been angry as I come around in the right lane, how many times as I've looked over with maybe a grumpy face on, have I discovered someone who had other things going on in their life? And I have been ashamed. Screaming kids. Mom or dad trying to do, you can tell, you know, they're, they're yelling at the rearview mirror. Uh, the last thing they can even know is that they're in the flame. You've got, uh, you know, someone who's elderly who's gripping the wheel because the intensity of driving is like nothing that they've ever experienced today versus when they started out driving. Or the young driver who is scared to death, they, changing lanes? I'm, I'm, I don't even know how to keep the thing straight. We've all seen this. And I'm grieved in my heart when I have judged and become angry about this. Now, we understand Romans 13 makes clear that we're to obey the civil authorities, but what I mustn't do is go beyond start getting into these kind of details with this legalistic language to satisfy my own preferences. Have I ever forgotten I was in the left lane, zoned out, stayed over there, someone's been on my bumper for five minutes? Have I never ever neglected to turn on my lights when it starts raining in Florida because that too is a law? Have I ever failed to use my turn signal? Have I ever crept over the speed limit? You know, by even one mile per ever per hour, which is an infraction of the law. Now, all of that may seem silly, and I intentionally chose something that was silly because I don't want to play the Holy Spirit, because that's where legalism can often creep in. What I'm convicted of, what I have a sense of uh, that, that's out, you know, beyond the scope of what Scripture says, I don't need to apply to you. Now, Scripture's clear on what it says that we should and shouldn't do. Where it becomes legalistic is when we turn it into things that are not clear in Scripture. Maybe a conviction of ours. It may be based on some Scripture, but we have to be super, super careful. Now, I have seen this everywhere I've been, and I haven't been everywhere, but I've been a few places. It's been in every country I've been to, in every part of the U.S. that I've been to. This is how Christians should dress. This is how Christians shouldn't dress. This is what Christians should eat or drink. This is not what Christians should eat or drink. This is how you should raise your kids. This is not how you should raise your kids, and on and on and on. We are not to relax or add to the perfect law of the Lord. Instead, because it is His law, And his goodness knows no bounds. His love is unending. His faithfulness stretches to the heavens. 
we can delight in his good word and instruct in others on the right path without becoming legalistic or using legalism to shame others. Now, last verse. Again, he ties verse 20 with that transitional word for, showing this is all one complete statement. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because of who God is. Because he is perfect, and therefore his word is perfect. His word is righteous. His word is eternal. Therefore, our righteousness has to meet the standard. But instead of saying it like that, saying it how I might say it, Jesus says it in a manner that is significantly more practical. To those in the audience, the scribes and the Pharisees were the people that were the uber-religious. They were the ones that they thought of, uh, you know, that, that uh, were, they, they kept all the rules. They, they made a big deal about keeping all the rules. Everyone knew they were keeping all of the rules. If they found a piece of mint they would cut off a tenth of it and tithe it, Jesus said. This is how scrupulous they were in keeping the rules. They wore phylacteries, these, you know, boxes on their their hands, their forearms, and their their heads because they took literally God's command to keep the law on your frontals and on your hands rather than seeing the symbolic impact as being way more important that we keep God's word in our mind so that we act accordance. It guides our hands, what our hands do. That was the real meaning of that. But they took it literally. So they had all this outward stuff. They had prayer shawls. They had little uh, knits in the strings to remind them to pray. And, of course, so everyone could see that they were wearing this. They were uber-religious, and people admired them for it. So when Jesus says to his audience, you have to exceed their righteousness, they heard it as exactly how he meant it. It is impossible. It's impossible. And in one fell swoop, Jesus condemns the traditions of the religious elite and points out everyone's ineffectiveness in meeting the perfect standard. The righteousness that they needed, that you and I need, would never be acquired through their own doing. The righteousness the scribes and Pharisees professed was a charade. They were whitewashed tombs. All of them and us needed a righteousness that was not our own, an imputed righteousness, because that is the only way they would obtain it. Jesus doesn't yet explain how that's going to happen. He's going to get there, but he's not given the explanation. He's just telling them the standard at this point. And so they hear and feel the weight of it. But also, he's not simply going to explain it. He's going to accomplish it because he has come as the Savior. Now, to us today, this still sounds too good to be true, even though we know the gospel and we proclaim the gospel because we hear the weightiness of this passage this morning or we read a similar passage like it and we think, how can I ever? I can't. I can't do it. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. Some of you, uh, there might be one or two, might think that I'm a nice guy. Others of you think differently. You could say, Seth, you're such a nice guy. And I could say, well, I'm just, I'm living to the glory of God. I'm, uh, so far as it depends upon me, I'm trying to live at peace with all people. Um, just trying to love my neighbor as myself. And you might smile and not see through the charade. But what I have to confess is that such niceness, if you ever perceive that, is riddled with a fear of man, a disdain of confrontation, a desire for other people to like me, and on and on. All of our best efforts 
are plagued with and mixed up with sinful desires and idolatrous strivings. We need a righteousness beyond anything we could ever, ever achieve. It has to be a gift. And thankfully, that gift has been given to us in Jesus. And in the table that's spread before us today, that gift is declared that we would remember and proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes again. It was in his death that he is the perfectly obedient, spotless lamb of God laid down his life for my sin and for your sin. His body was crushed. His blood was spilt that our sins might be atoned for. And not only was the price paid, his death for our sins, when death should have been our wages, that was our wages, the wages of sin is death, and yet he came in our place and he gives us his righteousness through faith. So the table declares to us today the forgiveness of our sins, all of our sins, for all who trust in Christ alone. And this table declares that Christ's righteousness has been given to us as a gift received by faith. So as we approach the table, we not only remember the work of Jesus, but we celebrate the status that is ours as sons and daughters of God who made all things, who keeps all things, who rules over all things. And we rejoice and are glad because our sins are forgiven and we can now rest in the security of the one who has redeemed us. God's word is good. It is righteous. It is eternal. And that word is declared to you today through this means of preaching and through the table that is set before us that we now approach. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And where I have been confusing or short-sighted or unclear, Lord, would you bring and give clarity to us by your spirit that we might understand that there is a standard that we cannot meet. That even the most perceived religious, good acting, nice people, no one of us can ever achieve this through our own doing. It must be a gift, an imputed righteousness. And so we thank you today that that gift is ours through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we give you praise. I do pray that anyone here who has not receive that gift. Lord, awaken their heart, breathe life into them, take them from darkness to light today according to your will and for your glory. Lord, as we come now to the table, would you make us, um, would you cause us to anticipate with great expectation the goodness that we will see, perceive, uh, experience, receive in this table as you feed and nourish us. Uh, As Zach prayed this morning for the journey ahead. Graciously do this for us and in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and